we, we see there's uh, going to be um, an important reality that uh, Jesus is uniting people in the kingdom. And, uh, you know, one thing that um, they caution you in seminary, and it's just kind of like general knowledge is like, hey, you know, the, the, the pastor or the church shouldn't get political. And uh, as nice as that sounds, because uh, we think, well, we don't want to needlessly offend anyone. And uh, I think that's true. That the part about needlessly offending anybody uh, is, is important. But um, everything that happens um, in terms of the church and your obligation to obey Christ as your highest authority is political in nature. Um, but the, 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 the very word um, politic just is literally the word for poli or polis, which is a city, which means lots of people, right? Um, so, so all politics is, is dealing with the nature of relationships between people and the nature of your relationship to the state. Does that make sense? So, so anything political deals with your relationship to one another, your obligation, how you should treat each other, and your nature, uh, the, the nature of your relationship or obligation to the state. And so that um, really when you talk about um, what the church is, it's a political entity in and of itself. Because um, when you are rescued by grace and the gospel comes to you, you're not joining an organization. You're not... Uh, adopting something new into your worldview, uh, you are not, you know, joining AAA, okay? This is uh, what it means to be birthed into a new kingdom. You are a citizen of a kingdom under a king, and you have some obligations, not just to the king himself, but to one another and how we ought to treat each other inside that kingdom. This should start to ring true of what it means when we talk about, well, what does it mean to be a disciple? And how should disciples love one another? And what is the church actually meant to do? And so um, the, the, the outworking of um, the gospel uh, is, is important because it talks about how we should relate to um, those other claims of authority and also those who are outside of the scope of the church and those who are inside of the scope of the church. And um, I, I want to I kind of separate these out into an, there's an inward happening and there's an outward outworking of that, if you want to say it that way. So the inward part of that is that um, the gospel's going out, God's word is going out, and it's rescuing people. It's bringing people in. It's including them into the kingdom, okay? There's the inworking of that. And then once you're in, inside of that entity, um, there's, everything changes, if you want to put it that way. And then there's an outworking of what everything that has changed now should look like. And um, Acts is, listen very carefully, Acts is the story of historically how those two elements were established and settled. So we get to inherit the, the foundation or the groundwork that's been laid from Acts. So it's, it's doing the service of telling us, well, well, how does the gospel go out and what does that look like? And what are the effects that it has? That's the, uh, the you know, the, the inward drawing, although I'm saying going out, it's the inward drawing of people and who's included. And uh, that was, that's a pretty that was very up in the air, if you want to say it that way, at the beginning. They're like, is this just for Jews? Is this just for the disciples? Well, no, it's not just for the Jews. It's for, uh, as Peter said at Pentecost, this is for you and your children and all those who are far off, right? Those who are not included. So um, the initial hiccup 
um, comes now in verse or in chapter six, where we see kind of two distinct groups of Jews who are um, separated out, or they're kind of uh, at, at odds with one another. And this this really comes to a head when Gentiles start getting saved, and then that settles that question of well, well, who's included? Okay, and then we have the outworking of that, which is well, how do we treat those that are different than us, and how do how do we respond to those that bring that bring in something other than what we um, hold sacred or what we tend to value? And so all of those ideas within the church, well, when we only relegate them to this small spiritual sphere, and we say, well, don't get political, well, then you don't know how to operate outside of this room, right? You know, how do you interact with the world, or how do you interact with those who are, um, are not part of this uh, congregation? So these are, these are um, questions that are answered, and there's a tension that's presented in, in having factions or separations uh, in the church. And so um, T- today I want to settle or help us settle what do we do with conflict and what do we do when there's two sides that are represented and um, how does the gospel work that out for us. So let me pray and then we'll get to the text together and um, see what um, God might teach us. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to see what is true in your kingdom and that you would bring us to humility and that we might... Um, see uh, others as um, we see ourselves, as um, people who are desperately in need of your grace and that um, you have evenly offered it to each one of us because we all desperately need it. So, Father, I pray that um, you would help us to recognize um, the the need for uh, graciousness in the kingdom and between um, one another in our relationships, but then also how we reach out uh, and others in our witness of what you've done for us in the gospel. Uh, Father, speak to us in your word this morning. Equip us with what we need to make this a worthwhile uh, time. We need uh, your heart to uh, be ours, that we would receive your truth and the eyes to discern what is truth and what is air and Um, ears to hear uh, what is spiritual this morning. We love you and ask that you would do this for us. We trust you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So in general, um, well, let's do this first. Get to uh, Acts chapter 6. I have uh, verses uh, 1 through 7 because the the resolution on what we read in um, in verse 1 is... uh, is important, but lest we jump ahead of ourselves, we're only going to deal with all of the information that we gather in verse 1. So let me just read uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and uh, then we'll walk through it. So it says, Now in, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, there it is, the gospel going out, bringing people in, new disciples are coming, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, 
and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, or Timon, depending on if you're a Disney fan or not, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, so just in the first uh, verse here, we see um, that God is blessing um, the faithfulness of the apostles to just be obedient to God wherever he leads them, wherever the Spirit would equip them, that they stand as witnesses to what the truth is. And so the disciples are increasing in number, and this um, creates a lot of issues. And there's conflict, and conflict in the church hinders the witness of the church. And it, it's not just because um, people go, oh, they're just like me, and they fight. Um, specifically, it, yeah, you are just like everybody else. You don't become inhuman when you join the church, right? You don't get rid of every... Um, problem and difficulty that everybody else experiences. But um, specifically, this is, this is a, a problem for our witness because um, of what is, is so important about our witness is that we're unified. That unity is a key component of what it is to be included in, in the church and to be included in Christ. And um, Paul, Paul says uh, this is not a, a new feature here uh, in our day, it's not, it's a, it, it seems to just crop up here, but it, it had pre-existed where we find it here in Acts. And uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, Paul's addressing it in the church in Corinth because people begin to uh, take sides. And they choose up uh, based on some uh, affinity they have in their heart. And Paul's saying, look, when, when one person says, I follow Paul, and another person says, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? So what he's saying there is that you're doing something that you're operating only in the realm of the flesh and how man thinks about things, and you're not, you're not living in the Spirit. And that's the important distinction there, because if you were, by implication here, if you were living in the Spirit, there wouldn't be these kinds of, well, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos. Why, why do I say that? Well, because um, divisions in the church and, and, um, and any kind of allegiance is only possible when you neglect your highest and main allegiance, which is Christ himself, right? To, to, to identify with anything below the scope of Jesus himself or anything that is in the flesh, like, well, you're black and I'm white and that's my identity. Well, now you, you've reduced your identity to something fleshly and lost the main identity, which is I'm in Christ, okay? So, so this should be the, the main overarching thing that we see. Um, in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, uh, verses uh, 12 through 25, there's a, a long extended uh, argument that uh, Paul is starting with, um, you know, the gifts of the Spirit and how they're varied and many. But he also walks us through the importance of what the Spirit does in uniting us. And so uh, I don't want to skip over that. So just listen to uh, a, probably a familiar passage of Scripture again. It says... Um, as it is, there are many parts, yet there's one body, right? There's, there's different kinds of things, but the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. That means even if you don't think greatly of something that's different than you, you, you give it all the more respect and honor, even though uh, that means you, you assign it uh, the worth that you do to everything else. Um, 
which is afforded to all the rest of the more presentable parts. Uh, but God has so composed the body, give greater honor to the parts that lack it. There is to be no division in the body that the members may have the same care for one another. So he makes this transition. He's, he's obviously clearly using the metaphor of a, of a human body and a physical body and how there's different things. And then he transitions it to, but you as members, he's now he's not talking about the church as the body, but you as members, there, sh- there should be no division, no separation. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, prophets, then teachers, miracles, gifts, healings, administration, and so on. So here's the point. He said, look, you are united because you are included in uh, Christ, but that only gives you one identity, if you will. Even though you're distinct and, and different, if you want to really get down to the nitty-gritty, you, you still are part of the, the, the global body, right? The, the more overarching thing, which is the body of Christ. Now, um, this is important because uh, we, we tend to look at other things and we make distinctions, and that's what's happened here. So the fact that there is any kind of conflict is only possible because they've looked to something else as a designation of what their identity is. Right? And your identity is, defines not just who you are, but then what you do because of who you are. And the fact that there is a group of Hebrews and a group of Hellenists that we find in, in uh, verse 1 is important. Now, without that historic walkthrough that we did beforehand, you, you just need to know that the Hellenists were those who had been uh, dispersed out of uh, Jerusalem proper and kind of were far-flung lands in the diaspora. That just means the casting out of the Jews. And they had adopted uh, Greek culture, but they were still Jews by religion. And they had all traveled back in to Jerusalem at Pentecost, and they were saved. And uh, so they had stayed. And so now we have these kind of Two, two factions, if you will, these two groups of people that should not be separate, but yet they are. And so um, in, uh, in John chapter 17, when, when Jesus is uh, offering his high priestly prayer, he prays for one overriding thing. What is it? Unity, oneness, union. And he makes the comparison that just as I, Christ Jesus, the Son, am one with God, so too may all of you, my apostles, my disciples, be one with me. And then he says, look, this isn't, I'm not only praying for those that are here, but for those who will believe on the uh, testimony or your word. And that comes in, um, in uh, verse, uh, what is that? Verse 20, I believe it is. I do not ask for these only. He's not only praying for the apostles, but for you. You sitting right here, he asked for the same thing, that you would be united to one another and that you would be united to Christ just as Christ is united to the Father. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, listen, that they may all be one. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe. So the fact that you have unity with one another, and that unity reflects your union with Christ, that is your testimony to the world. Does this make sense? Okay, so your political relationship with one another and your relationship with those outside. It's your, your testimony to the world is your union with one another and not the separation that you hold with one another. So here it is um, that what's happened is that um, a separation has been made a distinction where they're finding their identity in something else. 
and it creates a rift. Now, I, I don't want to minimize the fact that uh, it's widows that are being neglected. There's an actual problem that exists here, and uh, I'll, I'll resolve that for you at the end, but it's, it doesn't ever rise to the level of sin. This is not a sin issue, and uh, we, we need to recognize that, but it potentially is. And this is the beauty of how the Spirit is operating in Acts, where he himself is settling these kinds of issues. Because left up to man, the Hellenists and the Hebrews maybe have, I don't know, an arm wrestling tournament to see who wins, right? And that's not the way to go about it. So this is all evened out uh, very um, wisely with, with the wisdom of God. Um, but before we jump ahead, um, something that you miss in the text, because you, we, we tend to just read about the part about people being passed over in the distribution, is the fact that the, the complaint arose from the Hellenists. And um, I don't want you to miss this, because uh, it's not just the potential sin that happens from favoring one person over another or creating divisions in the church. There's also a, an underlying potential sin, which is the sin of grumbling. And, uh, and so I want to talk about that because whenever there is a problem in church, um, it, this, is, this is our go-to. And I want to tell you why this is handled correctly because this is addressed the right way. And, and so we need to know uh, that, that um, grumbling is, is frowned upon, period. It's a sin, <laughs> okay? So when you see there in verse 1 when it says, a complaint arose, uh, it uses this wonderful Greek word that you need to hear because it's so fun to say, ganguzmas. Okay, and uh, it's an onomatopoeia, it's like murmur, 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 right? It's, it sounds like what it is. It's sort of this like hard word that uh, it, it's not, it, it's always speaking of, of discontentment. It's never used in a good way, okay? So here it is. This is what's happened in the church. The disciples are increasing. We've got some different groups of people and some murmuring has happened. Now, if I say it that way, you hear it the right way. And some murmuring has happened. Some grumbling has happened. Some complaining has happened. And grumbling is sinful because it's unbelief expressing rejection of God's providence. Okay? So this is uh, the sin of Israel in the desert. As the Lord is leading them, he's providing for them, they always find something to grumble about. In spite of the fact that God has been more than gracious to them. Is this true? Yes. Uh, and so they, they tend to grumble. And what that means is they don't go to the source of the problem. They talk about the problem. And they magnify the problem. And they just complain in general about the problem. And that's a sin. And so that's, that expresses discontentment towards God's providence. And that simply means God's providence is whatever it is that he gives you. That's the who, the what, the where, or the when of where you are in life. And if you're trusting God for that, and then you grumble about it, then you're, you're saying, God, I reject your providence of whatever it is that you've asked me to do. So do you see how grumbling becomes a sin? Okay? So complaining is, is not a good thing here. Um, we're, we're warned away from it. Uh, every time this word is used, it's always a warning not to do it. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, verse 9, we're told to show hospitality to one another without grumbling right? Be kind to everybody. Love one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards of his varied grace. So um, what I want you to see in the second, the, the follow-up verse to that is that there's different, um, there's varied gifts and there's different amounts. And there you see God's provision, God's providence in that. So don't begrudge that, but whatever it is that you've been given, use that to serve one another and see each other as um, on your team, not on another team. 
Does this make sense? Okay? So, so when, we, when we don't do that, when we reject God's providence, then that leads to grumbling and discontentment. And so um, grumbling generally bubbles up from a heart that is um, empty, right? It says, uh, I, I lack something that I, I'd rather have. I'd rather be in a different situation. I'd rather be with a different person. I'd rather, do you see the problem? It's something, it's, it's from a heart that's, that's empty, not a heart that's full, okay? And, uh, and this is a problem because um, it creates conflict, it creates divisions and factions, and uh, it generally does not focus on the actual cause of the situation, just our feeling about that situation. And so, um, because if, if we really drill down to the cause, sometimes that cause is either something we don't control or it comes down to our trust in God's providence. And so if we were really to be honest with ourselves, we, we would um, steer ourselves away from grumbling more often than not if we would really focus on what the cause of our situation is. Well, um, well uh, I want you to, uh, to see for a moment, though, that we make measurements about good guys and bad guys um, based on our perception uh, we make a value judgment based on how we perceive somebody. And, um, and I want you to take that statement and now I want you to put yourself in the place of a Hebrew Jew. Now, the Hebrews are the ones who were not being passed over. Their widows were receiving whatever um, people seemed to think was fair in the distribution, but the Hellenists did not. Now, you, you have to understand that in a Hebrew mind, even if you were a Jew, but you were a Hellenist, you were a compromiser, okay? So now you're attaching a distinction about somebody. They're different than me, and they're bringing something to the table, and I, I make a value assessment about them as an individual based on some distinction. This is, uh, if, lest it be too ethereal for you, this is what racism is, okay? It's your different color, so you must be inferior to me. Does that, it makes a value assessment based on a simple distinction. Does this, is this tracking? And we do this uh, unconsciously, not racism per se, but other things all the time. And this is more than likely what's happened in this case. There's, there's probably some uh, um, built-in animosity towards Hellenism or Hellenistic Jews in general because they represent compromise and those um, who would be the Hebrews were sort of the pure people, if you will. Okay? Now, um, when, when you put all those people in the pool and uh, we see that the, the person that's being uh, categorized in their mind as the, the, the bad guy is actually the person that's being slighted in the situation. It's the Hellenists that are being neglected. And so even though in, in the Hebrew mind, they're the bad guy, they're the ones that are deserving of, of some reconciliation here. Well, let me... Um, let me help you see something through a different lens so that we can uh, understand what's, what, I guess, what's underlying this. So I'm going to paraphrase for you um, a parable that Jesus told. It was Matthew 20. Uh, he's telling a series of parables, and one of them is, is the workers in the vineyard. So essentially, it goes like this. There is a, a, a man who owns a vineyard, and he hires workers early in the day. And they come, and he agrees on a, a wage with them. He brings them in, and they begin to work in the field. He goes out again, like at midday. He brings in more workers, and they agree on a wage, and so on and so forth. This happens several times. He goes out at the very end of the day. There's only one hour left in the day. He goes out. He gets more workers, brings them in. And at the end of the day, they're standing in line. And the people that started 
at the beginning of the day, they're in the back of the line, and they begin to see the payout coming, right? And, uh, and the payout to the people that only came for one hour, they end up getting a full day's wage. So being in the back of the line, naturally they assume what? I'll get more than that. Why? Because I worked longer. And so what ends up happening is they end up getting the same amount and they're upset about it. Why are they so upset about the fact that, well, because if you were just going to remove this from the fact that Jesus told this story, and I was to tell you a similar story, you would be like, well, that's unfair, right? Those guys work longer and the other guys didn't work as much. Like, that's just not fair. Do you see how we stick to fairness? And then we create bad guys and good guys. Well, the guys that came in at the end of the day, those guys are slackers and losers and they don't deserve as much money as I do. Do you see this? Okay, now let me move that back into the realm of um, what's happened now in the Hellenists, in the Hebrews, and how we make value assessments about other people. The greatest source often of our own unhappiness is not that we don't have enough, but we don't want other people to have as much as they do. Okay? It's not that you are unsupplied. It's not that the people at the back of the line did not get, and that, that's essentially the, um, the vineyard owner's the vineyard owner's response is the, do we not agree on a fair wage? And can I not pay whatever it is that I see fit? And that's essentially the answer. So what is underlying this disparity and this problem in our characterization with other people is not what we've actually received, but what we don't want other people to receive. Do you see that? What we don't want other people to have. So this applies to anything, whether that's success or friends or relationships or stuff or grace. Okay. You've been a recipient of grace. God's word broke through your hard heart and you had as much sin as anybody else and here you are rescued. Somebody comes in later on and they've too been rescued by God's grace and they're included, but they still have some imperfection in their life. Guess what? Just like you do, but you begrudge them the grace that they have because it's not the thing that you struggle with. Do you see this, this dynamic in the church? I think you should. This is what's, what, this is what's underlying the, the, the division between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. I don't like them. They represent compromise. Do you see that? Okay? I begrudge them the grace that's offered to them, even though I, too, am a recipient of that same thing in full measure. Yes? Okay. So we think of ourselves in segmented ways, not just as, well, you're different than me because you do a different job, but because I value you in a different way. You require more grace than me. Do you see that? Okay, that's a problem. The more you focus on your identity in God, the harder it will be to be offended and judge others. If you will stop characterizing yourself by other things and characterizing other people by their things and instead focus on your identity being in Christ, you will find it much harder to judge other people. Why? Because you need the same grace they do. Does that make sense? Okay? So, um, this is not necessarily a problem here because one group of people doesn't like the other group of people because they speak a language. That's, that's a very superficial way of looking at it. It's a, it's a value that's attached to that. If a disparity exists in our valuation of somebody, then it leads to, naturally, our judgment of that person. Well, I, I value them greater or less because of whatever reasoning you put in there, and that's a false valuation. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. There's Christ himself and everyone else that gets to 
belong under his grace. This is why you need to find your identity there and not any other, other place, okay? So uh, this is a hindrance overall to the witness of the church when we make these kinds of distinctions, evaluations. And when we have a deficit mentality in our hearts, we begrudge anything that others have. So we're failing to recognize the grace in our own lives. They're failing to recognize the fact that God is calling all of these people to themselves, regardless of whatever distinctions may be in their past history or whatever um, problems they may have had naturally in the flesh with these people. Those need to be erased. So again, I'll make the careful distinction that I'm not saying that uh, this isn't a problem. It is a problem that they're being neglected, but I want you to see that the, the, the distinctions should not have been there. And so um, we see that those are being passed over. They're begrudging the grace that, uh, that's been given to those. Now, we don't know what the disparity is, but it's, but it's gotten to the point that they're grumbling, and that's enough. Now, I'm going to say something controversial, but I just, I'm planting it. I'm not saying thus saith the Lord, but I just want to plant it. Are you, are you seeing my asterisk? Okay. Let's say something like this existed. And unless and until it's sin, I think it would be the right thing to do to just be gracious about it. I don't think it should have ever risen above that. Somebody should have, it, now, now, I think because we never see this develop in the way that would indicate that it's sinful, like I said, it gets resolved. I, I think in the, same, in the same opportunity, if it existed today, we should, it's, it's again about measuring ourselves against somebody else. So if, if that is helpful to you, I hope it is. It's about humility. We, we, we might see because it doesn't matter where you look, especially within the church, you're, you're going to find disparities. Somebody will always have less than you, and someone will always have more than you. And, and this is not just about stuff. It's, 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 it applies to anything. So that it's, it's not God's intention. Um, it's not God's intention to enact socialism so that everybody has the exact same amount of everything so nobody feels slighted. You see that? That's an important thing to recognize. And the only way you, you can embrace that and move forward without having a, a hard heart is to realize that even when you feel slighted, you need to take solace and rest in the fact that you have the measure of grace that God has given to you. Even if someone else, even if you're being sinned against, that's what I should say. Even if it's a problem of sin, it's, it's our role it's our, to, to receive that rightly and say, for whatever reason, God, you have it this way, I will, I, I'm okay with it. Does that make sense? So that it doesn't elevate in your sinning by grumbling. Yeah? Okay. So um, now let's, let's talk about a little bit of resolution. So don't grumble, don't complain, don't see disparity in others. And sometimes there is uh, a problem of conflict and it does need to be resolved. But Philippians 2, uh, 14, 15 says this. Look, uh, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Again, it's talking about when, you, when we do this, when we have unity and even when there's conflict and we get over it and we find oneness together, we find union, right? We do that without all of the in-between food throwing and name calling, right? This is what makes us children of God, and helps us to shine as lights in the world. Do you see that? Part of our witness is our unity.
okay? So we are experiencing an imperfect expression of the union that, God, that Jesus prayed for. Why is it imperfect? It's imperfect because you and I are still in the flesh and we're not perfect. So when you put a bunch of unperfect people together in perfect union, it's imperfect and it's working out of that. And it's hard and we need grace for each other and uh, because we have grace for ourselves. So the communion in the church uh, should not lead you to become disillusioned with the fact that you really are united to one another. So we, we tend to major on the differences and the problems and forsake that and just lump that in with the whole thing. Well, the whole thing's bad because some of it's bad. No, some of it's hard, but the whole thing is good. Yeah? And, and, you, and you need to not be, become disillusioned with that. And this is why a lot of people bail on the church. They go, well, it's hard or it's pointless or that person doesn't like me, or, right? And we have a million reasons uh, why we think it's, 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 uh, it's something we ought to avoid. And here, look, people are just as messed up on the inside of the church as they are on the outside, but we, we, we have the beauty and the help of God's grace that we can strive forward together. So um, lest we start making false distinctions about people that are winners and losers and justify our condemnation of others, um, we, we, we can't despise or begrudge the fact that, that this union is not just something that God commands us to and tells us to deal with it. It's for our good. You, you, can't, um, you can't grow, you can't be refined, you can't experience what God has for you in um, uniting, him, uniting you to himself without the body. You're just a fingernail laying on the ground. It's pointless. You've not, you've not really experienced what it is to be included in the body without the church. Yes? Okay? So the, the, it's, it's necessary, but, but, um, but sometimes there's, there's conflict and there's things that need fixing. So problems need solutions and, and conflicts um, need, need uh, resolutions. Okay? So uh, how do we deal with conflict? How do we confront sin? Well, um, in 1 Peter uh, 4.8, before um, we're told to not grumble and not fight and to do everything uh, graciously, understanding that we're varied stewards of uh, God's varied grace, it says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So, um, this, you know, just full candidness, this, this verse gave me trouble because I was like, well, when do you then, when should you respond? When do you need to create conflict to bring a resolution? Because it actually is a problem. Um, so here, here is where we need to make some distinctions. So yes, Peter says, above all, love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sin. If there's a problem, it should be something that's, that's addressed, but it must, must come from a desire for unity in love, but it must also be a sin, Okay. It's not just that there's a difference between us or a preference that I have that you don't have. That's not, that doesn't rise to the point of I need to confront this thing and we need to deal with it. Love covers a multitude of sins. What does he mean by this? Well, rather than asking when does sin rise to the level of love not covering it, right? So that, I'm giving you the... Um, the analytical version of how I approach that, right? Which is like, well, if love covers a multitude of sins, when does love not cover that sin and it needs to be confronted? Do you see the question I'm trying to answer? That's the question. Well, here's the answer, okay? So the answer is this. Um, as soon as I find it. <laughs> Rather than asking, 
uh, should this be confronted or do I let it go, right? This one's on the house. That's covered by love. That's not, that's not what Peter's after here. Um, you don't actually get to make that call. The question is, have you failed to love your brother or sister in earnest? That's, the, that's what the first part of that thing is. Above, above all, make sure that you love one another earnestly. That means that the love is genuine, if you want to say it that way. So that it's not just, I love you, but you're a bad person. And here's the 10 reasons I've written down for that, right? Is that genuine love? No, that's me saying love, but not really loving you. Does that make sense? So the first question is not, does your sin rise to the level that I need to beat you to death over it? No, the first question is, am I loving you earnestly? Okay? And are you engaging in that union together in earnestness, in love, right? So the question is, is not... Um, do I let that go? It's, have you failed to love your brother or sister in earnest? Are you being judgmental because you lack love is certainly the first question. So it's, it's a question really of you, not of them. Am, am I lacking love in this situation and bringing judgment because I'm not earnestly loving that person in the way that I know them to be, in the way that I am, which is a recipient of God's grace? Make sense? Now, there's certainly cases where there is sin and there is conflict and it does have to be dealt with. And so, um, but, it, but when and only when it is a sin and it is done so in, in love. So it must be for sin. So the worst way to address a problem, first of all, is to become a grumbler or a critic, a professional critic. There, critic is not one of the spiritual gifts listed in chapter 12 of Corinthians. It's just not there. I know we all are very blessed with an immense amount of um, you know, joy in doing it, but it's the worst way to, go, to, to solve a problem. It doesn't solve a problem. In fact, it makes the problem worse, right? Uh, critics do nothing to legitimately solve a problem. And um, they only address the problem and they, and they magnify it, right? They, they only address it, they point it out, and then they, they magnify it. It's like, this is, <laughs> this is us. Uh, we, we have the ability to criticize something that exists out there. And it doesn't, it's never attached to the individual. It's always, it's always like very general. And there's, and there's not one person that's responsible. It's like, look, I, I've been saying for years that this hole in the ground is dangerous. And, and somebody's going to fall in this hole. Have you, have you seen this hole, guys? And then I go to somebody else, right? And then have you looked the hole? I mean, anyone can see that this is a dangerous hole. Who, what kind of stupid person would leave a dangerous hole in the ground and not fix the hole, right? And then you'd go to somebody else and you'd be like, you either have to be blind or stupid to walk into that hole, right? And then you go to somebody else and you're like, did you see the idiot that fell in the hole? And now the beautiful hole that we had that was supposed to be filled with drinking water is just filled with a stupid person. Did you see this? And you just criticize, criticize, right? And then it's like, and did you, that guy in the hole just won't be quiet. There's no peace to be had in this place. So it's all criticism, right? Critics don't fix anything and it's always very self-righteous. Always points to the fact that you saw it first, right? Right? I warned them. I told them not to do that. Um, that's not rooted in love, and it passes blame onto a very unspecific party. So, M Matthew 18 gives us the exact and only way to address real conflict and real sin inside the body of Christ, and this is Jesus's way of resolving the conflict. The first thing that you should do is if your brother is in sin or an heir, is go directly to them. And he says, show them their fault, 
right? Two, two parts of that. Go directly to the person that's responsible and show them their fault, right? So this is important because it takes it to the relevant or responsible party, the person that's actually at fault, right? That doesn't happen in chapter 6 of Acts. Do you see that? It's just a general complaint that arises. It's a, a criticism. Did you see that so-and-so nanny, so-and-so widow lady didn't, you know, she went hungry the other night, right? Do you, do you see that it's the murmuring and the complaining? That this, this problem is now elevated to the attention of the apostles, but not in a good way. So um, Jesus tells us instead, when there is an issue, take it to the person that's responsible and show them their fault. You can't show somebody their fault unless it's an actual fault. That doesn't mean show them your preference for how you'd like them to live. It means show them the way that they've erred. That's the word there, that they've erred. And the word is sin, harmartia, right? That they've missed the mark of what it is that they're supposed to do. So grumbling critics tend to generalize into loose concepts, okay? Let me give you a very current example. Whether or not you uh, are aware of it, um, I'll talk about them because we don't belong, so it's okay. (laughs) Um, The SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, is tearing itself apart under the problem of racism in the church. Okay? Now, whether you think that's a problem or it's not a problem and how it's handled and whether it's not handled, the, the, the criticism, listen to the criticism and why it's a problem. There's racism in the church. There's not a specific person that you can be handled. Who is the church? Racism can't be fixed. Racists can be addressed. Does that make sense? You can't fix a concept. You can fix a sin. You can address a sin, right? So the problem is the general criticism of an idea that can't be fixed. Now it's a boogeyman that no one can touch, right? And how do you know when it's repaired? Because nobody's pointing to a specific example. That doesn't mean there's no racism in the church. It means when there is, find the racist and fix that, right? Okay, so um, criticism is not helpful going to a direct source is. It must be an actual sin. It must be an actual transgression of what's happened. And the individual then must be confronted with their fault. That's why Jesus says, go directly to them and talk to them about it. Why? Well, either, there's two possibilities. And uh, one is that they genuinely recognize their fault and they will respond and repent. That's the intent. He says, go, go that you might win your brother, Right? And uh, so the, the intention is that they see their fault and they repent because you called them back to the truth. So it's, it's, then, it's in the presentation of the sin or the fault that there's a reconciliation that happens. And it's either going to be a denial or repentance, right? And then in that, in knowing that, there's a genuine either condemnation or judgment. Testify, look, I, I tried, I went, and here's what's happened. And then... If you all agree that that's a sin and you can go then again to that person and present them with an actual sin and they resist again, okay? Now they've, they've, they've shown you who you are or who they are, right? And you can respond again, which is to tell it to the church. This person is an unrepentant sinner. That doesn't mean that they're bound for hell. It is treat them like somebody that doesn't know the truth of God and call them back to repentance, so it says, treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. But not like as a pariah. That means try to win them back to the Lord. Do you see this? Okay? So all of it is intending to bring people back to the truth of God. But it, it needs to start with addressing the actual source of the issue. Okay. Now, because that never happens in this text, 
There's no repentance, no call to repentance. No sin is even mentioned. There's no reconciliation that happens. Neither party, I think, is guilty of, of sin. It's, it's, it's not, not in the grumbling, not in the apostles, not having the distribution to be equitable in the way that people felt it would be, right? It, this is a simple um, function of the church grew real fast. There was some um, designations. There was probably some oversights, but nobody intentionally slighted somebody because they hated them. Do you see that? Okay? So uh, that doesn't mean that there is no sin ever and that the church is perfect. It just means as, as God is helping the church to navigate this, this issue arises in, in a way that's, I guess, soft enough or small enough that it can just be even, a, oh, we see that that's an oversight and we're going to appoint some help because we have a main task here, prayer and preaching the word. And we can't neglect that. And the, it says to serve tables. And when you hear serve tables, you think, hello, I'll be your waiter for the evening. That's not what that means. That means to be the minister over the tables or to oversee what's happening here. That the seven guys that they appoint wouldn't have been enough. There's, it's a distribution's happening right now, but it's not, it doesn't have a spirit-filled, equitable person doing that and overseeing that, okay? So that's what's happened uh, in this text. And I wanted you to see that um, the conflict exists here. Um, it's prevailed over. Every time somebody's mentioned as those who are filled with the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit gives unity. And somebody that sees what the Spirit does and who He is for us and in us is going to make an equitable distribution among the people. It's not, I like you more, or I like you less, or I think you need more and you need less. It's, I, I will, in the wisdom of the Spirit of God, make this even for whoever needs it. Make sense? Okay. So um, here's how we're going to close. <laughs> we, we, we need to remember that our value is not in some other superficial identity, right? And we, not, we, we can't begrudge the grace or any problems, and there is conflict in the church, to fall back to your true identity, which is Christ. He's the head of the body which we are, the church, the individual members. Yes, we're different, but we're still united all together with even amount of honor to all parts. Yes? Okay. Let's pray.